The way to think differently is to act differently and get comfortable with being uncomfortable. Welcome to the Unlearn Podcast, where host Barry O'Reilly seeks to synthesize the superpowers of extraordinary individuals into actionable strategies you can use to think big, start small, and learn fast, and find your edge with excellence. Here's your host, Barry O'Reilly. It's not often I get to speak to people who've truly changed the world, discovered breakthrough innovations and practices that have saved countless lives, and avoid grief and heartache for countless families. Dr. Gail Lebovic is a surgeon and entrepreneur whose work has had a huge effect in the healthcare space, particularly on innovative surgeries for women with breast cancer. Dr. Lebovic has developed eight medical device startups, all of which have been acquired and are still in the market today. She's a world leader with a passion for problem solving, getting outside her comfort zone and any box you try to put her in which, if anything, is counterintuitive and counterculture to a lot of the surgeon field. Surgeons think this way. We did it this way. It worked. There wasn't a disaster. We're going to do it the same way. Rinse and repeat. Yeah, absolutely. So that is surgical thinking, right? It's all based on outcomes and getting good outcomes and avoiding risk and These are the things you learn really quickly. Now, in surgery, you don't just jump into the operating room. You have to watch a lot of things. You have to do the patient care outside the operating room. You know, it's a structured escalation of learning and skills. So it's this process of constantly building upon what you learned. Finding people to work with her was challenging. Her mission was saving the breast without having negative impact or survival rates from cancer. She was the only woman surgeon in the United States really pushing for this, seeking out a community and a mentor to inspire her. It didn't come easy, but that's never been a problem for her in her pursuit of her passion. But when I started to learn about breast surgery and wanted to learn about breast reconstruction, I sought out a mentor. His name is Dr. Donald Laub, and he was definitely outside the box. He was one of the youngest chairmen of plastic and reconstructive surgery at Stanford, but he was so outside the box that he didn't stay at Stanford. He went into private practice. The academic environment didn't tolerate his unconventional thinking. That's so interesting. So even the environmental pressures around these people are forcing them to... In the box. (laughs) Get in the box. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And so someone at Stanford had told me about him. They said, you know, you need to look him up and... That in and of itself was an amazing story. So I did hunt him down and kept pestering him. And I said, I want to come and I want to spend my lab year. I want to spend working with you. And he's like, you know, what are you talking about? I said, I'll work for free. I'll do whatever. I want to spend a year and I want to learn how to do brush reconstruction. And he said, but you're a general surgeon. Why are you doing this? I said, because it should be part every time we do a mastectomy we should be doing reconstruction. And he was just looking at me like I'm from Mars. And this is the guy who has advanced the field of breast surgery, was doing breast reconstruction. And ultimately, I did go to work for him, with him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he taught me incredible things. And together, we learned we could do new things. We could change the way an incision was done for a mastectomy, for example. 
we could use a reduction to cure the cancer. And we started stepping, we started jumping outside the box. This is super interesting to me because even in my domain, right, when we're building technology products, so many companies, especially if you're working in highly regulated, high consequence scenarios, the ability to innovate in those spaces, everything is pushing against you. You've governance, risk and compliance say, no, the process works, it is. Why would we want to change that? Or regulations that say, no, it must be performed in a specific way, right? And a lot of this sort of, as you say, railroads people into a very specific way of thinking, specific way of behaving. It builds a culture like you described where anyone who's trying to do something different is sort of maybe even ostracized from some of the society, right? So you're someone doing that at this time and trying to break through in a new field that, that probably was undervalued at the times you're talking about here, right? Where people didn't recognize the impact of this or trying to change it actively. And you're pushing against not only the medical system, gender pushing back as well, like a lot of this old thinking. How do you start to tackle some of that? You know, it really wasn't conscious. I just had my head down and I knew it was the right thing to do. And I was mortified by how surgeons were approaching breast cancer. And so I started just really learning about why are they doing this? What's the biology of the disease? Why do we have to take the whole breast? There were studies being done that showed the survival rates weren't different and for the right and appropriate stage of disease. And so I knew I had to learn about the whole picture I had to learn about radiology and early diagnosis. I had to learn about medical oncology and which patients needed chemotherapy. I needed to learn what radiation therapy was doing to prevent recurrence if we saved the breast. So yeah, I was a surgeon and I had to learn all that. But in order to change, be a change agent, I had to learn the entirety of why we were doing what we were doing so we could change it safely. Well, this is, again, fascinating, right? Because you're talking about building interdisciplinary capabilities or knowledge. I know that you went all over the world to try and find people who were thinking like this to build community, to try and increase the knowledge pool, increase the research, the data to make these decisions. Why was that intuitive to you? I'm not sure. I think I was just driven by wanting to make it better for the patients. I think it was compassion. At the end of the day, it was like, holy cow, how can you do this to somebody? We did it because we wanted to do a good job and make sure all the breast tissue was removed. And then you leave this woman horribly changed forever. And they did well. Women are tough. Oh, I know that. Yeah. You know, they suck it up and they move on and they go back to work. And it always amazed me. So I thought, we have to do this better. And it was by putting one foot, I didn't have like some grandiose vision or anything like that. It was really one step at a time. And ultimately, when I really figured it out, I had a very busy practice. People came from all over the world to do this because the outcomes were really good. And then in 2004, I realized I had been marginalized and ostracized by kind of the mainstream surgical communities because they were still, wow, she's crazy. What are they doing? Although there were people in Europe and Latin America who were way farther along, 
And so I knew it was safe for patients. I knew what we were doing was safe. Well, this is such a, again, you're measuring the outcomes, you're bringing data to the equation, your patients are getting better, and yet still the establishment don't believe or feel threatened by these innovations. You it's know, hard to understand. Oh, it is. Yeah. We see this a huge amount in my space. Like you can present to people that there's a great research as to why you should do this. You can show evidence of new ways of working, but because people have never seen it or experienced it themselves or performed it themselves, probably it's not real to them. Um, so how do you help people get that breakthrough, especially in a high risk field like you're dealing with here where there's complex procedures? Everybody believes their way is the right way. And, and again, the establishment is trying to force you to be inside the norm that they've created. In the early 90s and actually in the late 80s, I, I gave grand rounds at Stanford, you know, to the surgeons. Never was invited back. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously. Great. And, well, you're obviously doing something right then. And Dr. Lab and I were up there. We presented our patients. We had a series of 50 patients where we had done reduction mammoplasty and used this different type of incision that ultimately results in a much better shape of the reconstruction. And I can't say enough about it. People now are talking about it everywhere. It's now finally becoming adopted. Still not mainstream, but it's much more popular now. But look at how far we are. I mean, that was 1989. That's a long time. It's Absolutely. a really long time. I'm glad I'm still alive to see these changes happening. Mm. But ultimately, didn't work in the academic environment. Clearly, they weren't ready mm. to hear what I had to say or what was happening. In the 90s, I basically focused on my practice and just doing a really great job with my patients one-on-one, -on -one, which is a very rewarding experience. I also started to get involved in technology on the early diagnosis and the minimally invasive and more towards breast conservation in the 90s, developing technology while I was in practice. And then ultimately in about 2007, I kind of had this thought, well, you know, I'm not going to be able to do this forever, and I can only impact so many patients. I understood from my work in med tech that you can influence or impact a lot more lives if you create something and then teach other people to do it Absolutely, or use yeah. it. Yeah. And the numbers are staggering. It's like after we invented the mammopad, like now 100 million women have had a mammogram with the mammopad. So that was very impactful to me. I was like, wow. Okay, so technology is a great way to change medicine, but it takes a long time still. I decided I needed to do the same with clinical medicine and surgery, and so I started kind of a private way to teach surgeons after they've finished, if they were in practice, if they'd been in practice 25 years, it didn't matter. You can still learn new things. And that was really interesting. So I actually got a grant from Mary Kay Cosmetics because a board member was one of my patients. Great, yeah. And she said, oh my God, why aren't other surgeons doing this? Experienced it, obviously. Yeah. And so she said, I want you to come and I want you to talk to the board because Mary Kay actually died from breast cancer. Wow. And she started a foundation for breast cancer research. And I hadn't known any of this. And so I went to the board and I just basically 
show them the kind of work that I was doing and that I wanted to teach other surgeons these techniques. And they gave us a grant of $325,000 to put on a meeting. So we put on a meeting and I made that grant last for five years. That's uh, pretty amazing. Yeah. We did it on a shoestring and basically just started to grow the organization. And now we have 501c3 status and I have a lot more time to dedicate to that organization. Because what I learned is if you train one surgeon to do something differently, they can impact 250 cancer patients a year. It's a network effect, right? Yeah. And so now we've trained a thousand surgeons all over the world. They come from all over the world. And it's really rewarding because, you know, we have one surgeon from India. They have started an entire movement throughout India. That's super inspiring, right? Oh, it's incredible. So the amount of things you've done, right? Like you had breakthroughs in uh, the medical space. You're an entrepreneur. You've built all these different products and services. What helps you recognize when there's an opportunity? And what are some of the small steps you take to get started when you want to figure out, is there an opportunity here? Yeah, that's a great question. I basically, it always comes to me as a need, a basic need. I'm working on a new project right now, and I'm trying to capture or think about the process because I haven't really done that before or really think about yeah. the process, yeah. but a lot of people are interested in that. Of course, yeah. So basically, I start with a need as opposed to creating a need, right? Yeah, it's a massive skill. Most entrepreneurs here in Silicon Valley, they've got a solution that's looking for a problem a lot of the time, and that's what gets them into trouble. Correct. And so these are things that just come up before it was in surgery. It was kind of an obvious space. I was immersed in the breast cancer space. So I knew there were problems with diagnosis. I knew there were problems with getting women to get their mammogram because it was painful. So let's invent a pad that makes it less painful. You know, maybe more women will have early detection, which allows us to do the creative surgery. So it starts with a true need. And then it's quite a journey to, you have to do a lot of research, research not only things about that particular problem, you need to understand every aspect of it. Then you have to understand the regulatory guidelines, the intellectual property landscape, all of the minefields. So typically it's a year or two of research before you actually decide, yeah, we should do this. Interesting. And that's when you start to say, right, this is a problem worth solving. I believe I can solve it. How do you prototype? So I've had an incredible opportunity to work with a small group of very skilled engineers that have worked with Dr. Tom Fogarty for years, decades. That's headed up by George Herman, who is just a very bright engineer. I mean, not just an engineer. That's a misstatement. He is out of the box, right? Same kind of thing. It's removing those boundaries, opening your mind, living in an open way and not saying, oh, we can't do that. Because it's only the laws of physics that keep you from being able to accomplish something. So what are some of the funny anecdotes? I'm sure when you've been building these prototypes, you've tried all sorts of fun things that have worked or didn't work. Or what are some of the moments oh that gosh. jump out? Oh, there's so many. So I was actually just here yesterday with a bunch of prototypes for this new project. And it's really fun. But I will tell you, when they set them out on the table, there's always one. Interesting, yeah. There's always one. 
okay. How do you identify it? How do you identify it? It's my gut. It's just gut. And a big part of that, that is so important. That's the key moment that ultimately drives adoption. Interesting. Because we have done this before where we are kind of stuck and like we had something we thought, okay, yeah, that's going to work. That's going to work. And we went pretty far down the path. Actually, that happened with us on the Biosorb mm. implant. So we had a design and a shape because what I wanted, the engineers felt there were too many challenges and they couldn't make it. Yeah. Couldn't manufacture it in mass quantity. It's going to be too difficult. Can't do it. So let's do this. So I kind of capitulated. But ultimately, when at a certain point, you have to freeze the design for the regulatory requirements and pathway. And I, there was just a little part of me, there was somebody in there, you know, going, eh, I'm worried that, and you have to think about all the risk and the things that can go wrong. Right. And I think that comes from surgical training. That critical thinking is obviously standing through you to not only in the medical discipline, but also in the product development point of view. You know, like one of the things I think is really lacking in product development skill overall is real good critical thinking. People tend to just optimize for the happy path. They, very rarely do they think about unintended consequences or rarely do they even test for that. One of the things we're experiencing definitely in the technology world is people are starting to use our products in ways that no one anticipated, right? You just have to look at the recent election and how Facebook was manipulated in ways that engineers couldn't even anticipate or weren't even looking for. And then you're in a domain here now where you've got a human life at risk and consequences with high stakes. So how do you start to use your sort of critical thinking skills from your surgery training, from your medical training, and you're applying that in a technology-based domain? Like, What do you see are the parities or the differences? That's been kind of the most interesting and eye-opening experiences. It really takes a very cohesive team of people. And you have to check your ego at the door. We come into the room and we just go at it. You cannot get married to an idea because you like it. That's really not the objective. The thing is, what are we trying to accomplish? And let's all try to raise that bar to the point where nothing bad is going to happen. And that means to the patient, means to the business, it means to the customer. You have to look at all those aspects. And we do that. And we just grind away at it. And we just keep going. And it's not criticizing a design necessarily, but we critically look at it and anticipate the risk. What happens if this happens? What happens if they use this kind of suture? What if they do this? You can't anticipate everything, but you sure can eliminate a lot of the risk by doing that. But you have to be willing to take that hard look at what you're doing. So how do you create that sort of culture in your teams then? How do you sort of welcome critique on the product rather than the person? How do you really sort of reinforce that with your team? What are some of your little hacks in that space? You know, I think that it's the same team that I've worked with all along. And I think they know I admire and respect their work. And I mean, we don't need a lot of stroking <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> because we all love the process, right? And so when they brought in a table full of prototypes, they spend a lot of time like making each one and this and that. They know when I go, 
that's it, that I'm not criticizing them on the other ones. It's just like that actually fills the need. That one does it. Oh my God, it jumps off the table. Yeah, no, it's great to sort of create those teams, I think. I think it's rare. Oh, absolutely, right? I think it's really rare, which is not unfortunate. I think it's really not a personal thing at all. If everybody understands this whole thing is bigger than any one person, then it's okay. But I think it also requires you role modeling, though, that like when you're bringing this mission that you have, you're very clear on the need. But it seems like you're not wedding yourself to ideas either, right? Like when your team see you accept criticism of an idea that you put forward and go, great, let's make it better. Like, I don't think there's anything more powerful leaders can do. I think where you lose people is where you espouse these values of let's critique, let's challenge the ideas. And then someone says, well, I don't like the idea that you put up. And then suddenly you start fighting with them going, well, why? My idea is brilliant. We often see a lot of that in teams. And I think, as you say, removing your ego from the idea is actually one of the most powerful aspects. But you're doing this like 30 years, right? We're only starting to see research in the field of <laughs> high performance teams now that creating multidisciplinary, cross-functional teams, challenging ideas, not the individual. This is only starting to bubble up as what is described in research terms as this is what creates great teams. So what helped you sort of I think it was just natural and I think it was very organic. I think some of what you said I found really interesting. Like it's definitely not personal. And I think what typically has happened, and this is just an observation, but I think men tend to be very competitive. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm competitive with myself. That's it. I honestly, I don't care what other people do. I think it's great. I'd like to reward them and recognize them when they accomplish great things. I'm happy when somebody else does really, really great. I think that's not the usual mindset. I absolutely agree. And so what I see is when you get a lot of men together, it becomes very competitive and they become really almost, I don't know, competitive with me, which I don't really go there. I'm like, we're all in this together. And now I recognize it. I didn't for many, many years. I was like, hmm, that's really weird. I wonder why that didn't work out. And it's this internal competition will kill anything. It'll kill any project that you're working on. Oh, yeah, that's a great idea, but we're going to do it my way anyway. So I am there with the engineers. So they will criticize my idea and say, well, we can't do that, but we can do this. And this is why. And there always needs to be a why, right? I just think that's a great takeaway for people is like this notion of competitive with yourself. Like, how can you get better? Is such a more powerful notion than how can I beat someone over yeah. there? It's really all that matters. I mean, we're here on this planet for a very short time. And my goal was always to do what I could do as much as I could to leave this world a better place. I love when somebody else does something great too, but that's not what I'm here for. I'm here to do my best job. And if I can't do it, I need help. I definitely know what I can and can't do. And when I bring in somebody on a team they know what I can and can't do. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, again, I think it goes back to your idea. It's of, teamwork. Right. But I think recognizing that in yourself and sort of owning that to a certain extent of knowing these are my competencies and where I can excel 
and these are my weaknesses and where I need to bring people to support me. What I constantly see with great leaders is they have that humility. They don't pretend they know all the answers. They don't try to overreach in areas that could have bad consequences if they're overreaching and it's uncontrolled. They, they build great teams around them, people who will challenge the idea and that recognition in themselves. And I think it's such a powerful trait in great leadership is having humility and knowing when to bring people in to work with you. I think it's essential. I think some of that may have come from really early beginnings as a gymnast. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> because you learn what you can do and what you can't do really quickly. Right. Yeah. Falling off yeah. that bar. You're <laughs> falling falling off again and again and again. Because I specialized in the uneven parallel bars. Oh, wow. Okay. Which I loved. Yeah. Of course. I still get that feeling. Like I remember that feeling. And it taught me a lot of things. It taught me discipline. And again, you're on a team, but really you're responsible for doing your own personal best. Interesting. And so I think a lot of that may have come from there. Yeah. Well, I think like all these inspirations for people, I think like our experiences shape us so much. And as you say, it's quite recently, it's like you're only starting to think about reflecting on so much of the things you've done. When you think about the other reflections, what other moments jump out to you as sort of key turning points for you in the way you sort of have thought or behaviors that have propagated forward that helped you be successful? I never understood like what was driving me because I was really working really hard and I still do, but I didn't understand people have a weekend, for example. It's like, oh, you work Monday yes. through Friday and then Some you have Saturdays the weekend. It's like, Sundays, yeah. I still don't get it. It, it because I think I love what I do so much. And that can be any job you're doing. But if you love it and you love the people you work with and it's fun, you don't care what time it is. It's four in the morning. It doesn't matter. It's life and you're doing something productive and it's fun. And Well, spending time with you, it's very obvious how much what you do energizes you. Okay. You know, like it's a mission that is obviously dear to your heart and has a phenomenal impact on society. But you. But I didn't know that. I yeah. really didn't. I just, like I say, I think it's almost like a hand is guiding you to do all these things because things happen in my life that you couldn't make happen. Like you couldn't say, well, I want make a list and I want to meet this person and that person and this person. I've never lived my life that way. I just live in a very open fashion and let things come in. And then there's that decision tree. When you make that decision, you have to really analyze, hmm, these are the pros, these are the cons, how do you make that decision? And again, it goes back to your gut on a lot of these. Well, there must be a little system in there. I'm trying to figure that out. <laughs> oh, that's great. It's up on the wall. Awesome. So the people who work with me know that I don't make lists and it's getting a little bit harder. <laughs> I don't keep calendar. I don't use the calendar on there. And I really pride myself on not being late or forgetting things. And so it is getting harder. It'd be nice to use technology for some of that. But I'm kind of anti-technology. I'm not against it. I see how it has changed our world and how fantastic it is. But I still like talking to people on the phone, meeting them in person, because I think there's that X factor that you get. Absolutely, yeah. When you're sitting across from someone like this. The it's, only reason I do podcasts in person. Yeah. It's a totally different dynamic that it, you have with people. It totally is. So there's stuff we don't know about yet. I'm convinced that there's stuff out there. 
that's going to be really interesting to discover. So working in the space and the fields that you're exploring now, what do you feel are some of the notions, maybe in the medical industry specifically, that maybe need to be a little unlearned? What are some of the things that you're sort of, you've talked a lot about these institutional thinking about one way to do things or repetitive and almost anti-innovation because sometimes it's easier to just keep doing the same thing. I actually, unfortunately, I think it's going in the other direction. Really? Yeah. As we start to shrink the medical community into tertiary centers, you know, we're losing the private practitioners. There's a shortage of physicians. There's a shortage of surgeons. It makes me uncomfortable thinking about the future of medicine, because what I see is algorithms, people trying to replace physicians and that personal touch, clinical examination, which is an art in and of itself. It's an art and a skill. I think it's being lost. So I think it's going in the other direction a little bit, and that makes me uncomfortable. I see medicine being can't think of the right word even. Well, how we see this in my world is automation is a huge thing, right? Because it drives efficiency. We can have less people. We can run more profitability. It's amazing. But you're ultimately you're just automating manual processes. You've so, touched on it. That's it. And this idea of that we can suddenly just automate, or we know how to do diagnoses, or we know how to do a general practitioner review, just go talk to the robot and it will just run through the algorithm and give you the answer and we're solved. Massive efficiencies, we're going to save the world, right? But what if you're automating the wrong process? Well, you've hit the nail on the head because that's it. I was having a difficult time kind of expressing what I'm seeing, but that's it. It's mm. kind of dehumanizing the medical process, right? Uh, yeah. And it is an art. Oh, absolutely. And it yeah. is a skill. Yeah. For example, when I walk into a room of a patient who's near the end of life, which is a very important time, you can assess that person, not necessarily even with labs, which would be the automated way. Absolutely, yeah, But yeah. by looking at them, seeing the color of the skin and very subtle clinical factors that a robot will or a computer will never be able to assess. And so I see that happening more and more. Interesting. Absolutely. Yeah. I think it's one of these. Disturbing. Well, when you start removing empathy from the process, you over-optimize for other things. And I think one of the unique parts about doing any great work is, yes, you need some empathy. Yes, there are technology can support and augment what you're doing to higher degrees of accuracy, maybe in certain instances, like doing incisions, maybe a robot might be better at that, maybe. But do they know what decision to make when, where and why, or how to respond in situations where if your skill and your background gives you this opportunity to know where people might need help or the different type of help they need? Um, yeah, it's really an interesting thing to think about because the human brain is so complicated and how a physician makes decisions, particularly in the moment during surgery, it's a very complicated process. So to unravel that and try to automate it, I understand the context in which that's happening. I think it's to save cost and to be able to globalize medicine, but I think we're going backwards a little bit by going forwards. 
if that makes sense. Absolutely. Absolutely. And empathy is something that is really interesting because how does a computer or a robot have empathy? Well, as far as we know, they don't at the moment, but uh, somebody probably <laughs> yet, thinks they right? can solve it, right? right? But again, I think what's really interesting and ties back to is empathy is what drives identification of these needs. And I think in your instance where you have that empathy, you see these needs, and then you are, in essence, turning these opportunities into technology products that are actually saving hundreds of thousands of people's lives, which are admirable. But so it's always great to hear that although you're a technology innovator, how much empathy is so important to the process that you go through as you're building these products and services. Thank you. I always am trying to put myself in the patient's position. And I think that drives a lot of it, like trying to make that experience at the end of the day a better experience because it's not fun to be a patient. Oh, yeah. I think we all know that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's not. So looking forward now for you, what are some of the things you're excited about um, as you look, especially in a field like breast cancer, which is it's traumatic for family and individuals and patients and so forth. Um, What are you hopeful for about how we're starting to tackle that illness? And maybe what are some of the concerns you have? So many great things have changed in breast cancer care since I was in medical school. And I feel incredible that I was involved in most of those changes. It's a great feeling. And I think now, looking back at that personal challenge and my personal contribution, I think probably the biggest contribution I'll be able to make is in training other surgeons to keep going on this path. I can't give up developing technology (laughs) because that is something I just am addicted to. There are a lot of people around me trying to encourage me to just stop and relax and smell the roses. And I tried. It's been about six weeks. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to say six minutes probably. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Actually, I'm not good at that. That's something I know is a limitation for me. I'm not good at it. I don't enjoy it. I like being productive. Um, But it it energizes you. Like, it's obvious. Totally. Why would you remove that if it's so virtuous? I live for that. Yep. So. And maybe some of the concerns then in the industry, like what should we be, be cautious of? I worry about that human factor mostly, and I see more and more women who have a really difficult time interacting with the medical community, not getting what they need, not getting the knowledge. They get a lot of knowledge off the internet, which is good. I think something is going to come along to fill that gap because physicians are overloaded. They're way overloaded with information, with patients. The patient load is just grueling now. So... I think that's discouraging to people going into medicine. Yeah, that's a really interesting point, actually. Yeah. They look at other physicians and they're just worn out, burned out. Physician burnout is a big topic at our meetings now. Well, it sort of goes back to your first point about, in some respects, when you got into surgery, you were maybe naive to what it actually meant because people are aware of how challenging that domain is it's hard to get people to do it. You know, and any of my friends who've gone down that path, I remember them really thinking about this as a a major commitment to make with trade-offs, but we need these people. Yeah, I never analyzed it. I never thought about it. I just knew I loved doing it. But again, looking back, I always wanted to have children and that was something I had to sacrifice. I didn't Mm. sacrifice it knowingly or on purpose. It just happened because years go by and then you realize, oh, wow. 
I was able to accomplish a lot in my career, but never managed to have a family. So it's a balancing act. And it is harder, I think, for women sometimes. Absolutely. You know, I'm surrounded by amazing women. Uh, I've seen the diversity they have to go through. And people on this show have been huge inspirations for me, you know, fighting up against always having to go against the grain. It's always harder. So people like yourself are massive inspirations for all of us. So thank you for all your work, as I can say. And I'm sure I'm saying that for hundreds of thousands Mm -hmm. of people. Thank you. That's a great feeling. So is there any other things you want to share? I don't know. It's been a long life. I Sometimes I look at, again, I never have really stopped to look back. And now that I'm kind of doing that, I'm being forced to do that. I just wonder how I did all of that. <laughs> I have boxes and boxes of files from all these companies that I've started and patents and just all this stuff in it. It's a little mind boggling. Well, it seems like one step at a time. Right. One step at a time. Uh, One little bitty step at a time. There you go, yeah. (laughs) Well, they've taken you very far, those feet, so you should be sure you're very grateful for them. Yeah. Well, look, thank you very much for your time, sharing some of your insights and stories along the way. It's been really interesting and phenomenal to meet you. So again, thank you for all your work. And it feels like you're only getting started. So I'm kind of excited (laughs) to see what more lies ahead. Thank you. Thank you. Cool. It's been great.